Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and also at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show, and you can support the Jazz Session at the same time by doing that. And you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to safely and securely give a donation directly in support of the Jazz Session. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of the show, just get in touch with me via the contact page at thejazzsession.com. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you might remember that uh, for the 100th episode, I kind of broke format, and rather than having an interview with a musician, I spent the show talking about uh, my grandfather, Bernie Flanders, and the effect that he'd had on me uh, and that his taste in music had had on me, and I played a lot of the music that was special to him. And I was trying to think of something kind of along those lines to do for show number 200, which this happens to be. And I had had some good things suggested to me, and uh, then I had this conversation with saxophonist Dave Liebman, and I thought to myself, well, that's a pretty darn good show number 200. And uh, so that's what I'm going with. I think you'll agree that uh, a chance to talk with someone of the stature of uh, Dave Liebman is a great way to celebrate 200 episodes of the Jazz Session. Dave is uh, in the midst of a, a bit of a celebration himself. He's uh, been getting awards and releasing a gazillion albums, and he's all over the place on tour. So uh, it's hard to choose uh, what to begin with, musically speaking, because there's so many CDs to choose from. So I've decided to go with uh, this one called As Always. It's a live recording of the Dave Liebman Big Band under the direction of Gunnar Mosblad. And uh, it's all Dave's compositions arranged by various people. And it begins with uh, one of Dave's earlier tunes that he wrote, I think, back when he was with Elvin Jones. It's arranged here by Andrew Rathburn, and it's called A Bright Peace.
My guest is composer, saxophonist Dave Liebman. He is uh, in the midst of an amazing year of recordings and uh, concert performances and awards, and it is my extreme pleasure to welcome Dave to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Well, I, I want to uh, certainly uh, talk a lot about the music that's happening this year, but one thing I really want to uh, to focus on that's been a part of your life for so many years um, is education, and uh, I thought maybe we could start off talking about a couple things that are happening kind of at the same time, the 20th anniversary of the International Association of Schools of Jazz, which you mm-hmm. helped found, and then you've also, for 25 years, uh, been a, a part of the same uh, saxophone master class in Stroudsburg, and You've done so much uh, in terms of education, from books to videos and everything else. I thought maybe you could talk about why that's important to you and why it's been important to you for so long. Well, uh, as you say, noting the decades does bring home a certain impact, that's for sure. And uh, it was you know, 20, 30 years ago when I first did my first workshop with Jamie Abersold, who I really didn't know. On the East Coast, was, we didn't really know about him. It's kind of a Midwest phenomenon. And I was amazed at just the organization and the way people could teach this music, which supposedly was, you know, not teachable. Um, and getting into it, I found that it, I had certain skills in being able to verbalize concepts. I enjoyed talking about the music. You know, some musicians are reluctant to talk about the intricacies, but I love doing it. And uh, I also felt that this was, uh, on a practical end, a way to obviously, as a performer, uh, you know, to supplement your performance and gig income and so forth. Uh, it was a choice in those days, in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, you know, you could sort of say, I want to pursue a studio, uh, studio, um, studio jobs in New York City where I was working and so forth, and I really didn't want to do that, and this seemed like a nice alternative to be able to, you know, make a living doing what I like. And then, of course, there's the, the uh, payback aspect, I call, which is like, you know, I've been very privileged to have had a career playing this music and starting out with the Masters, you know, with Elvin Jones and Miles Davis and having that great opportunity to really pursue a, a, a career over decades. And this is like what it used to be to be a sideman with Miles or Elvin. This is my way of passing down the tradition, keeping it alive, and, uh, you know, encouraging young people to be interested in it. And whether they become musicians or not is really secondary it's about the process and the tradition and the, and the great qualities, I think, that defined in this in jazz music. So it's kind of a service, you know. You, you, this is what we do for the payback for having the opportunities that I've had. And uh, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like over those decades, the importance of being able to uh, to take a class with someone like you uh, strikes me that it, that it's probably increased because the old kind of journeyman or apprenticeship uh, uh, system that existed when you were coming up doesn't seem to be there, obviously, to quite the degree that it was. So it seems no. like getting these opportunities might be even more important now than it was when you started. Well, we, we with this International Association of Schools of Jazz, IASJ, we, we have a little mantra that, you know, education is the future of jazz. In, in, a, in a really down uh, to basics level, the classroom where an uh, ensemble is practicing daily at 3 o'clock in the afternoon under fluorescent lights is kind of the substitute for the jam session slash mentor system that you're referring to that is, you know, more or less waned. And uh, the education thing has taken up the slack, and there is no shortage of interest. While other things seem to be, you know, with the economies going down worldwide and so forth, it seems to be less, you know, should I be a lawyer, should I be a doctor, there's no work. 
There's more and more enrollment this year at every school I talk to than ever before. I cannot explain it why people would want to spend forty to fifty thousand dollars in an undergraduate or graduate situation, a marketplace that doesn't really exist to that degree. But on the other hand, there is this incredible interest in just about the music, and uh, it has grown out of what you refer to as the old system, which is is you know has been gone for years, mainly because it's not that much opportunity to play economics, and of course the passing of the masters. I mean, it's one thing to have Art Blakey hire a different band every three or four years, but now most of the students, they play with their peers. They don't go through the farm team, farm club kind of thing that we used to do. So education is really filled in the void. And uh, just a kind of a final question on, on this topic. Uh, do you feel at all that the amount of jazz education that's out there is allowing you to perform in front of audiences who might know a little bit more about the intricacies of the music than was the case in the past? Great point. Absolutely. I, in fact, of the various audiences you might play to, ranging from a festival where people come because it's a three-day weekend in the sun, to the Birdlands and the Village Vanguards, to the student concerts that you do at the end of a workshop, my favorite audience is by far the third one there. That We are talking to young people who, first of all, have the enthusiasm, of natural enthusiasm of youth. But the second thing is exactly what you say. I mean, with this music, with any you know abstract art, education is the key to understanding it. You can't expect somebody to come off the street and get the point. I mean, there are certainly some jazz that is easy, more easy to understand than others. But in the end, education means exposure and when you're teaching somebody for a couple of years, you have you basically told them how to listen. I mean, in the end, and I would hope, you know, we all have this dream, the oldest musicians like myself, we say, God, that audience are creating, you know, where are they? Why don't they buy records and so forth? Well, maybe that's a technological thing because of the, uh, you, know, I, you know, iTunes and so forth. But point made is we are building an audience of people who will understand what, you know, somehow what Dave Liebman's playing better than if they didn't, they weren't exposed to it in the first place. So, yeah, we are uh, actually teaching people how to listen to ourselves in a way.
Uh, this year of 2010 is uh, is bookended for you by, at the end of last year, uh, receiving the Order of Arts and Letters medal from uh, the, the country of France. And then in 2011, in January, uh, you'll be named a, a Jazz Master by the National Endowment of the Arts, or you have been named, but will officially receive that award. Uh, what do those kinds of recognitions uh, say to you about kind of where you are in life? What do they what do they mean to you? It's, but, well, it's obviously at this point, it's really meaningful. I mean, it's nice to be recognized. I've never been a highly commercial item in the sense of, you know, let's say box office, you know, sales of records or high-paying, you know, tours and stuff like like some of my peers are. But this is recognition about the quality of work over years. And I mean, it's a it's a it's a truism, but you know, if you stick around long enough, you'll you'll get the rewards. You just got to be consistent and keep doing it. And I I realize that. I mean, I certainly was frustrated at times, but. You know, 50s, uh, 10, 15 years ago, I realized, you know what, you just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, especially if you're fortunate to be able to make a living and have a life in this music. Well, you will be recognized because it's inevitable if you keep up the consistency and quality of the work, which, of course, is up to, up to the individual. So I'm very honored, of course, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have been, you know, to be noticed. And, and this, the NEA award especially is significant to me because it puts me with, you know, my master's mentors and the people that made me want to do this music and I'm very proud of that well let's uh, let's dig into the music now um, I think you're on about uh, 150 recordings this year it seems like but uh, there's some particularly uh, enjoyable ones that I've listened to that I really want to talk about mm-hmm. Um uh, one of the ones that just really knocked me out was the uh, the Quest for Freedom record uh, with the Frankfurt Radio Big Band yes. and uh, Jim McNeely's arrangements. And there's another Big Band record at the same time, the Dave Liebman Big Man, uh, yes. as always. And so maybe we can start um, with with that that Big Band idea and just talk about, uh, I guess in the one case, the experience of performing with a large ensemble, and in the other, the experience of hearing your music uh, <laughs> brought to life by a large ensemble. Well, both are on par to being just very dramatic uh, situations. You know, you're playing in front of 17 guys. And, uh, you know, there's a team sports aspect here that can't be denied of the power of the machine, you know, mowing down the lawn or, you know, going to the the goal line, you know, like a football game. And there's something about the camaraderie and the force of a big unit that, of course, is gratifying. Um, The fact that I have so many arrangers or have had over these decades so many arrangers from the well-known like McNeely to a guy who heads a department at such and such university who have been just willing to offer their services because they like my music or they like me or whatever and to you know pick I give them a bunch of tunes and pick one that interests you and uh, do, do whatever you want you know you can complete freedom and they write for me so it's really it's an unusual situation I don't know any other band that exists like that I mean in a certain way it's the most egotistical thing and self-centered thing <laughs> in the world but it is, you know, my, my all my tunes, for the most part, and uh, arranged by great arrangers to feature me in front. I'm not even in the section. I mean, and I'm using the soprano. I make make. I've made it a point to uh, to use the soprano to really have a, a sound that is, you know, will be homogeneous across all the different arrangers. And it's. A, I mean, I'm just thrilled that I can do it. You know, it's not economically a greatest thing to do is travel with 18 people, but. Um, that recording for Frankfurt, of course, is the radio bands, in, which still exist in Germany and still have some budgets for creativity. And my own big band, of course, is just a matter of pulling it together every couple of years to, make, to be able to put a record, usually of live stuff, which is what as always is. So, I, you know, I just really enjoy it and, you know, love it. I mean, it's 
it's you know you're just playing in front of 15 horns. It's fantastic, you know. Yeah, one thing I thought uh, was interesting, I think I read this in the in the liner notes of As Always, is that you give uh, usually recordings of just the melody to people and say choose yeah. from these. Can you talk about why you do it that way? That's a very good point. Where did you notice that? Um, because uh, to pique somebody's interest um, in the you know without getting too technical, you know, rhythm, melody, harmony, color, and form is the five elements of music. Um, in the end, the melody is the universal to everything. I mean. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, it, musically, from the beginning of time, across the cultures, the music of different cultures, it, in the end, is melody that communicates. Rhythm, certainly, of course, and but rhythm is more idiomatic. I mean, an Indian rhythm is quite different than a jazz rhythm. But melody, outside of the instrument that's playing it, possibly, you know, a certain scale that might limit it or expand it, that's a musical thing. It really is melody that touches people. And if I want to get into a ranger interested in putting the legwork and the time and effort into making an arrangement of one of my songs, I think they should really be attracted to the melody. I mean, I'm not the greatest melodicist in the world. I'm not, you know, Stevie Wonder or something like that, and I, I don't claim to be. But I would, would imagine that getting somebody's interest on that level opens the gateway to the possibilities for arranging for a large ensemble. And they, you know, they'll come back to me and say, oh, I like, I don't even give them titles. I'll, they'll say, I like number three and number eight and number 12 on the cassette or CD or whatever, and I'll send, then send the lead sheet and the full version of the tune with the improvising, so now they can hear what I did with it um, and go from there. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, an approach, I think, which works and gives the arranger the freedom to choose what attracts him or her. And do you take uh, a role in subsequently then in the arrangement? Do you give feedback or things like that uh, to the arrangers? If they ask me, you know, and I encourage them to be as creative as possible. And of course, <laughs> I have to, obviously, what happens is, let's say I have 15 tunes for the next tour or something like that. That's probably 15 or 12 arrangers, maybe somebody did two. So of course, if they're giving me something and I'm not paying them, you know, for the most part, um, they're probably writing the, their most challenging and hardest thing, first of all, because of my reputation, maybe. The second of all, because, well, I'm going to do one for leaving. I'm just going to put, you know, all stops out, put the most I can into it. So my poor big band, um, in the case of the David Liebman big band, which is made up of, you know, stellar A, A-list musicians in the New York area, you know, every tune is a voyage into the abyss. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, musicians love to be challenged, and, you know, I'm, I'm obviously known in a certain way for that. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting because every tune is a trip, as you hear on that, as always, record. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, throwaway, soft, uh, let's, uh, you know, a transition tune between two major epics. This is every tune is an epic. And I tell them to be as creative as they like. And of course, if they have any technical questions they ask me, but most of these guys are really good at what they do. I, I've never written for Big Man. I, I just don't know how you can think for 15 people plus a rhythm section. It, to me, it's amazing. You know. So the end of those uh, Dave Liebman Big Band concerts, uh, everybody must re re retire to the green yeah, room with a cooler. Right? Take a lot of concentration. <laughs> um, because the music is, is quite challenging. Uh, these guys are really writing, you know, intense stuff. And with, I'm not telling them it's for high school bands, you know, I'm not, and I'm not telling you I'm going to play at the Knights of Columbus. This is, you know, please give me the highest level you can.
thing that strikes me as a, as a hallmark of your career is that you have tended to uh, create and then maintain bands uh, for extended periods of time, from Lookout Farm and Quest to the, the current band with uh, Vic Juris and Tony Marino and Marco Moschinko. Uh, can you talk about why that's important to you, why surrounding yourself with people for uh, an extended period of time matters to your music and to you as a performer? You know, the other side, of course, to start from the other, which is the quote, one-night stand, so to say, and, you know, which is fun, and which a lot of guys do, is to get guys together for a couple months or a particular tour, and, of course, the thrill of the newness of how so-and-so plays and what they do, how it affects your playing, is, of course, exciting. There's no question about that, and, and there's ample opportunity to do that in the, in the way the, the business setup is now. I, I go to places and do that. But for me, to have a home base of a repertoire and a, uh, personnel that I'm familiar with, they're familiar with me. We've been up, down, through, around the world together. I enjoyed each other, sometimes couldn't stand each other. Um, it's a marriage, and I think that in the end, the depth of communication overrides anything else, and I feel that that's what the audience really un- uh, gets. They don't get necessarily intricacies outside of these students we were talking about before. Um, they get the feeling of the ensemble. Sure, it's Dave Liebman, I like the way he plays, but boy, that group, and boy, that guitar player, and that drummer, and they really play together, and I think the audience feels that and hears it. I don't know if they notice or make cognition of it on a, on a really mental level, but I think they walk out of a performance like that with a deeper impact and a deeper impression than musicians who, as good as they are, uh, just because of time spent. It's not musicianship, it's not any attitude thing. It's because of time spent. We are just so familiar with each other that um, the level of conversation is a little higher on the food chain, and that's what interests me about keeping groups together. Yeah, and uh, for my money, you and, and guitarist Vic Jura seem to have a particularly kind of telepathic level of, of communication. How did, how did you first meet Vic? Uh, well, he, you know, he's a New York-based musician, and... Um, um, we probably passed in the night somewhere in the 70s and 80s. But I remember it was a clinic in Germany, a workshop, and uh, he was there, and I noted him, noticed his playing and everything. And, you know, for me over the career, as you notice, since you know all the groups, I mean, it's either been piano or guitar. And piano has mostly, you know, been Bayrak, and, with, you know, now I have Marco with Mark Copeland. But um, I've always liked to kind of dance between the piano, which gives me a certain picture and a certain way of playing, and the guitar a different way. So I had that band where I used Schofield, who was relatively unknown in the late 70s, early 80s. And then when I back, went back with Richie with, the, with Quest and everything, and that, we had our 10-year run and in the 90s, I really wanted to go back to the 
a guitar for a variety of musical reasons. The independence of the single line, the strength of a single line is as if there's another horn there. The m colors and effects and things that a guitar can do, which a piano can't do. And then in this case, just Vic's really incredible sense of harmony that he's really built up over the years with me. And his line playing, which is just, you know, so fluid. He's just so good in the language, in, in, in so many languages, that, uh, you know, I, I, I was very gratified to hear him. And I saw in him, and it's definitely true, I've never seen anybody work harder on music, or at least my music, than Vic Juris over the years. I mean, he takes something home. We just rehearsed two days ago. He takes something home. He tapes it. He calls me. He says, what's the voicing? You know, he really wants to do it right. And, you know, when you have a musician like that, there's no limit to what can happen musically between between myself and that musician. And I really, I, I have such respect for Vic's work ethic, let alone, you know, his musicianship. Uh, in addition to uh, all of the new music that's coming out, uh, a couple of the bands that I just mentioned, Lookout Farm and Quest, uh, I understand that uh, we're going to get a chance to uh, have those things on the available for download on the Internet, a lot of the, uh, yes, the early imminently. records. Yes, uh, imminently. Uh, I had a long relationship with CMP Records. This was a man named Kurt Ranker, who uh, you know sold the label years ago, but still stays active and dabbles with people that he, he likes and is interested in. And he has found, I guess, the, I don't know, the equivalent of an iTunes. I offhand don't have the name, but they will be available everywhere. And the site will be, at this point, primarily many of tapes and um, archive recordings I had over the years of my stuff with Byrack Duo, Lookout Farm, and Quest. So there's about, I think we're starting with about 15 CDs worth of material that will be available for download. I think it'll be, you know, album only kind of thing. And uh, it's exciting because, you know, over the years, when you know, I'd walk out of a gig and somebody say, "Here's a, in the old days it was a dat, and then it became you know a, a CD or whatever." I would take it home and I'd, I'd catalog it and say, "Yeah, this is good. This is not good. Uh, let's keep this. Let's not keep that." And now to have the opportunity for for fans and people who love our music for it to be available, I guess in perpetuity. I mean, <laughs> I guess we don't know yet with the digital thing, but forever is quite interesting. And I'm going to you know slowly put things I have from other groups on there and just try to have a record. I mean, what what I envision is going to be the scene in, you know, next decade or so in light of the new technology is that somebody like myself or, you know, at another level, Miles Davis, you have a little credit card size thing you have in your pocket. It will have the whole, everything you ever did. And it'll be accessible to anybody as a great archive, whoever's interested in your particular music. So I'm thinking ahead in that respect. Sounds good to me. <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing if uh, if folks go to your website, uh, they'll be kept abreast of uh, oh, yeah. when these releases yeah, I'm, come out. I'm pretty on top of my website. I do the every two months. I do this intervals newsletter, and I just actually hired a guy to help me with all the social networking, Facebook and Twitter, and all that stuff. You know, just to make a, a presence in that respect, because you know you have to go with the times. This is what's going on now. Thank you. 
Dave, a couple other records that I uh, I wanted to ask you about. Um, one is uh, Turn Around, the music of Ornette Coleman, which was named the 2010 Album of the Year uh, by the German jazz journalists and critics. And another um, on uh, Robbie Coltrane's label is uh, a record that you and uh, Joe Lovano were doing of yes. uh, Coltrane's music. Uh, uh, what... What for you is the is the kind of joy and challenge of uh, of delving into the music of these kind of seminal figures? Yes, well, I've always been interested in what I call the category of repertoire music. I've, as you mentioned, those people, and I've, you know, I've gone from Puccini to Alec Wilder to, of course, Monk and Train and so forth. Um, I just think that number one, it's the tradition, and again, it's my feeling that certainly at this point in my career. I, represent to some degree a continuation of the tradition having been on the stage with Miles and Elvin and my duties to you know to do in one respect on the other hand musically I just think to be able to take material that is classic and some is known material I mean the Ornette tunes you know they're known some of them are known and to encase it in your uh, your aesthetic in one's own way of doing things First of all, I think it's the greatest compliment to the composer, although they may, <laughs> they may not be so happy with the version. But I think that it shows it's very good for the listener because the listener has a reference point, you know, the, the, the experienced listener. Oh, Lonely Woman. Well, I've heard that a million times. Oh, wow. What an interesting slant. How creative. Well, not creative. You know, they, they may feel either way about it. But at least it's a barometer and it gives somebody a standard where they can begin. It's like they start on the ground floor. And I think that helps them listen to me in general. It helps, of course, spread the music of those particular people. And it shows, in some, in hopefully in positive light, the ingenuity that the artist is using in adapting material to his or her own style. So I love doing it. It's a great challenge because, you know, yes, you want to be true to the tune. And, you know, Ornette wrote that tune. And, okay. On the other hand, I want to be true to myself. So this is a little game that I sit at the piano with <laughs> in the case of a song. I mean, it gets get down to it and I really kind of go hmm, left right up down me in <laughs> which one <laughs> you know <laughs> and, it's, and it's a great exercise and musically it's great because it relieves you of the original material syndrome which is oh my song my way my 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 here I'm with Ornette I mean he doesn't know it he may not like it but I am sharing the responsibility of presentation and of the art with somebody else and that is nice. You know, that makes it a little less lonely out there and a little easier to do. So I enjoy doing that, you know, aside and next to my own material.
coming up throughout uh, this month of September and into uh, October and November uh, and December. You are just all over the place uh, in, in just about every conceivable context that you're currently working in, both with your own uh, quartet and uh, also with... Uh, I don't know, I hate the phrase supergroup, but a, a, a very yeah, impressive group of uh, Steve Kuhn and Steve Swallow and Billy Drummond uh, at Birdland and with the big band. Uh, is this... I don't know, you've been doing it now for so long. Is it still exciting to you to look at your calendar and just see everything that's coming up? And is it still a, a thrill for you to be doing this thing? It is. Doing? It is. It's ex- exactly, Jason, as you say. I mean, it's just such... I mean, I'm, I'm about to go downstairs to go over the music with, that I'm doing with... Uh, Swallow and Kuhn next week and then I have next Sunday we have this Coda Festival where I live out here at Delaware Water Gap and I'm playing besides with my group I'm playing with a young guy named Bobby Avey and he has some music in 21.8 and so forth that I have to explore (laughs) and you know rehearse a little I I, I love the challenge I mean it's a lot of work you have to organize yourself you have to get the music together you have to make the calls you have to say "Mm, what am I playing here what am I doing and you have to you know Everybody in this business, look, this is the entertainment business. You're only as good as your last performance. Nobody remembers the one before. So, you know, you want to be on the ball and you want to be, you know, ready. And I do dip into three or four different kinds of music in the span of four or five days. And it's very, you know, very much the case for me, especially when I'm in Europe, you know, where it's between countries and cultures even. And I like it. I'm challenged by it. And my energy level is pretty high and I'm able to handle it. And, you know, I'm just riding the train as long as it goes into the sunset. That's what I think. Because, you know, there'll be a time when it won't be like that. I, I, I'm, I'm realistic, and I understand that. So while it's good, I'm going to really keep popping on it, you know. My guest is uh, saxophonist and composer Dave Liebman. He, uh, what, what more can you say about Dave Liebman? He's, uh, he's got an amazing amount of stuff going on at this point, and uh, I highly recommend uh, you check the show notes of this web, uh, thejazzsession.com, and you'll have links to Dave's website and his concert calendar and all these releases. Dave, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to mention? No, I was, but we should finish. You did mention, and I didn't uh, uh, go to it, that uh, recording with Lovano. Um, it was about three years ago, I guess it was 2007, a celebration of Coltrane's passing from the BBC, and they called me and said, could you put something together very quickly, we have only a week, uh, with some of the, with Saxophone Summit. At that point, after Michael Brecker passed, it was with Ravi, and he could not make it, um, and uh, Cecil McBee couldn't make it, there were normal members, so Ron McClure filled in on bass, and I had Billy Hart and Phil Markowitz, the regular members, and Lovano and I said to Joe, look, we'll just go in and place a little survey of train from, you know, early train to late train. And it just, it was like, great. I mean, it went down like water. You know, you can imagine with musicians like that. Um, and uh, we are planning, I don't have a release date yet, but it will be in the new year to release that on Robbie's RK label, uh, which he's had up for 10 years. You know, for a variety of reasons, Robbie's, you know, part of the snacks on it. And of course, it's his father's music and... uh so we're looking forward to that next uh, next year at some point, and of course, looking forward to recording a new saxophone summit record. Uh, Dave, it's uh, it's just a real pleasure and an honor to to talk to you. I've enjoyed your music for years and years, and uh, it's it's been a thrill to have a chance to talk with you about it. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest and very astute questions and information. I appreciate that.
And so that's Dave Liebman on show number 200 of the Jazz Session. Who would have thought? I'm Jason Crane, and this is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show, along with a donate button if you'd like to give something directly. My thanks to the Respect Sextet, whose theme music has graced all 200 episodes of the Jazz Session, and they have a brand new album out called Farcical Built for Six, which you'll find at respectsextet.com. It's uh, highly recommended by me. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who uh, did the logo design for the show and then uh, updated it when it became uh, presented by All About Jazz. And uh, thank Dave very much for helping the show uh, look classy. <laughs> at, least, at least it looks good. I, I can't really say much about how the host might sound, but it always looks nice. Thank you so much for listening for the last 200 episodes and for however many more we can squeeze out of this idea. And uh, please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, which will help keep my guests employed and give them something to talk about here on the Jazz Session. So get out there, support some live music, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.